On this week's TribCast, we'll talk about Texas Monthly's biennial best and worst list, the latest on the migrant crisis on the U.S.-Mexico border, and Governor Greg Abbott's vetoes. But before we do, I want to thank our TribCast sponsors. Texas Children's Hospital. Join patient families and Texas children's expert physicians on a journey to save lives. New episodes every Tuesday. Learn more at texaschildrens.org slash podcasts. And the American Heart Association, which thanks the lawmakers who voted to raise the tobacco sale age to 21 in Texas. Hello, this is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, June 19th with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by news editor Matthew Watkins. Hello. Hi, Matthew. Reporter Emma Platoff. Hi there. Hello. And Texas Monthly's political writer Chris Hooks, who's here to talk about uh, the best and worst list. Hey, good Hello, to Chris. Uh, we'll also be joined by our Border Bureau Chief Julian Aguilar in the second half of this show. As always, we'll take your questions uh, in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can do it using the hashtag TribCast and make them really hard for Chris this week since he's here with us. Uh, okay, as I said, Chris, we're super happy to have you here this week so we can drill you relentlessly on the decisions uh, you and others made to come out with this year's best and worst list. Um, I'm going to start with a super softball to warm you up, and that is um, in a session that was devoid of sort of the kind of drama and highs and lows that we experience in most legislative sessions, how hard was it to come up with bests and worsts? Well, it was it was pretty hard. I, in past years, they've done 10 best and 10 worst, and we ended up going with eight and eight. Um, oh, that's interesting. I, I didn't even consider that. So you were too short in both categories. Yes, we uh, we uh, turned in incomplete homework. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, there was... a. Uh, um, I've been told that in past years there were a lot of candidates that stick out and uh, the hard thing is narrowing them down and, and uh, we definitely had a hard time finishing the list until the end of session. Um, yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to um, let Matthew and Emma, uh, I've got my own <laughs> list of questions. I've been preparing for this like a, you know, a David Whitley confirmation hearing or something here. <laughs> oh, exactly. <No. laughs> Don't be scared. Matthew's no. not very terrifying. I know. Uh, yeah. And I mean, I, I think like recognizing that this is almost an impossible task, right? Um, you know, the... Everyone is going to have their own opinions here. I think it's tough. I think the one thing that my kind of first question when looking at the list was the absence of either of the education chairman on there. You know, obviously the big issue being public education. Uh, Dan Huberty, it would have been one I would have guessed um, given his kind of long history of trying to pass the school finance bill uh, might have seen on the best list. What, what was the thinking there? Yeah, well, uh, we really did do this by committee. Um, so I, if I were to kind of summarize, I guess, the conversations that we were having, um, the he, he was on the best list in 2017 for the same work that he's doing this year. Uh, definitely a lot of people in the session brought him up as a, as a best contender, and a lot of people urged us to put him on the list. I think the thinking in the room was that... Um, uh, one, the school finance bill, as time went on, became kind of a bill by committee. A lot of people were making contributions, and that was partly why people suggested he go on the best list, because he was letting people make those contributions. But there was a feeling that uh, maybe by the end of the session, it was less his uh, effort than a group effort. Um, there was also the sales tax swap, um, which we had a hard time figuring out what to do with. It was this bomb that was dropped in the middle of the session, and... Um, uh, um, uh, failed um, and uh, possibly also was bad policy, depending on your perspective. Um, he was involved in that. Um, and um, uh, uh, there was also the question of, I guess, whether the package of legislation that came down at the end of session, school finance and, and taxes, is, is good policy. And I think that's the jury is out on that. 
the other thing that jumped out to me was um, the leader of the House on the best list, the leader of the Senate on the worst list. Um, obviously, any, anything that needs to get through the legislature needs to get through both chambers. So what was what did each of those do to kind of get on their respective lists? Uh, Dan Patrick um, had a very strange session. Um, he was he seemed to be much more focused at times on national issues than state issues. Um, which, depending on your POV, might be a good thing that he's not uh, as active in shaping state policy as he was in past sessions. But the example that he said in terms of the stuff that he was saying on television and his absence from some of the more important debates at the legislature did not seem like behavior that we expect from uh, state leaders, I would say. All right, Emma. Matthew, I could already tell him, going in with a third. It's Emma's turn. <laughs> All, right. All right, well, I have a bone to pick about uh, what I see as an omission from the worst list, which is... Who is being held to account for failing the plumbers this session? Uh, as we know, the licensing agency for Texas plumbers uh, was not renewed. Lawmakers failed to renew it, and Abbott had to step in with this kind of questionable executive order. So who, who's, who are we blaming for that? Uh, no one. I appreciate the freedom to practice the plumbing craft. Uh, <laughs> we have an aspiring plumber. You do it in your uh, bathroom at home all the time. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're journalists. We need plan Bs, and <laughs> it's a pretty good one. Um, I, I have to say that the plumbing thing did not come up much in the debate. I, uh, uh, who would you hold particularly responsible for that? Well, Chris Patty, the House member who vice-chaired the Sunset Commission, Brian Birdwell chaired it on the Senate side, um, believe that Sanfronia Thompson was responsible for killing the bill in one iteration, kind of a laundry list of options. I don't know. I'm sort of with, with the Texas Monthly folks on this, though. To me, it just didn't strike me as like a big enough deal. It was very easily rescued. Uh, for me, it's like pinning that as maybe like the worst fumble of the... Le was it? Was that the worst fumble of the legislative session? Maybe. I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think you can make a case for that. Mm. Emma, any others on your list? Uh, another one I, I guess I would ask about is a potential emission Senate Democrats holding together to block David Whitley from being confirmed as the Secretary of State. Um, you know, they had the numbers to do it. All they had to do was stick together. But looking at examples from past sessions, this was a pretty prominent stand for them. You know, towards the end of the session, you had caucus chair Jose Rodriguez taking attendance twice a day. We had members preparing to skip graduations. Um, no, no credit for them there. Uh, well, we talked about it a little bit in the uh, the Watson best. Right. Um, it, it definitely was an impressive thing that they did to hold together. Um, I, uh, uh, I I think one of the reasons possibly that there's um, fewer senators on the best list is that it's hard to um, uh, it's sometimes the things that are happening in the Senate are imperceptible. Um, there's not a lot happening. Often, <laughs> often feel yeah. that way. Yeah. yeah. It was a kind of innervating uh, chamber this session, um, and um, we definitely had a hard time getting a handle on what was worth lauding and uh, in the Senate. Um, what was not worth lauding, much easier. <laughs> what was the criteria here? I mean, wh what what did you think merited including someone on the best or worst? Was it the policies? Was it how they behaved as legislators? Or uh, I think it was, it was some of both. Um, and it's, I think it's changed over the years. Some years it's very much about who wins in the chamber, who gets their objectives. Sometimes it's about um, whether the chamber holds them in high regard. We tried to keep a mix of uh, policy outcomes and the behavior of, of lawmakers in the chamber, whether they made the legislature a better or worse place. I mean, how important is it when you look at the final list, are you like, you know, do you stop and say, um, we don't have a person of color here or we don't have enough women here? Like, does that play into the makeup at all of like making sure it's a well-rounded group on both ends? Uh, yeah, that's certainly a discussion that we're having. Um, I, uh, you know, I think uh, people are, are want to uh, make sure that it's not a, a, a 
an excessively partisan list, um, and uh, and and that there's a mix of uh, of, uh, of people in the legislature that are represented uh, for sure. What have you caught the most heat for? Yeah, I'm curious. I've seen some on social media, but like, what what have people been slamming you all the most for? I'm sure there's always someone. Uh, well, a lot of people were angry about the omission of Huberty. Um, I, they think that he should have been on the list for sure. Um, I, the special award that Jonathan Sticklin got uh, raised a lot of uh, ire. Um, yeah, talk about that a little bit. So I'm sure Jonathan Sticklin will actually bear, wear this as a badge of honor, given that cockroaches can basically d- survive nuclear disasters. Uh, but what was the thinking on that? And uh, I mean, I, I know I can't ask this question. I want to know who came up with the cockroach label particularly. But So yeah, I don't want to talk too much about that. But I will say in this case, because uh, Stickland on Twitter has uh, raised the idea that I was responsible for that uh, <laughs> as part of my long running <laughs> crusade tell us it wasn't you? Stickland. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I did not write that one. And it was not my idea. Um, I Initially, I thought that maybe it was too pejorative. Um, and But it was explained to me and I came around to it that uh, cockroaches and old term of art at the legislature may be less in use than it, it has been in the past. In the 1973 first best and worst list, Paul Burka wrote a lexicon of the legislature, hmm. uh, terms that are used in the first entry is cockroach. And um, uh, um, one of the uh, uh, sentences in there is that it's not as pejorative as it sounds. Um, I, I think uh, uh, Stickland and his uh, um, allies, uh, supporters, uh, um, uh, took it as very pejorative. I understand that. But... Um, I have, you know, I have uh, admiration for Stickland, um, partly for his persistence and the fact that, um, yeah, he probably too could survive a nuclear holocaust. <laughs> I think probably could. And yeah. he celebrated, right? He tweeted that he was living rent-free in, I believe, your mind and in the mind of Texas Monthly, which he said was very fiscally responsible. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. With, with a couple of roommates, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it was interesting. I feel, it feels like Stickland had an interesting session. He kind of kind of became a freedom caucus of one, even though he technically left the freedom caucus, but then he also passed his first bill and it was a bill that, you know, was pretty broadly popular this session. So, you know, I think he's always an interesting character and he definitely kept it interesting. Um, do, does, I want to ask about Seliger. Uh, does Seliger really qualify as furniture given that Dan Patrick was on the worst list? I, so the discussion we had about that, um, he was mentioned as both a contender for the best and worst list. Um, and um, his big moment this session, uh, his speech on the floor um, when Patrick was threatening to use the nuclear option, uh, felt like it was going to be a very big moment at the end of the legislature when it happened. Um, and uh, the discussion we had about it centered on the fact that it didn't really change very much. Um, uh, the, um, it was a big moment, felt self-defeating fact that he voted for this and um, uh, he uh, opposed Patrick in very uh, colorful language and was fun to watch for that reason. It's hard, I think, to say what he got out of it or what changed because of it. Anybody else? Yeah, I, I have one more bone I want to pick. In the, uh, <laughs> the, the quote, generically good-looking Jeff Leach. Um, I thought he was an interesting one because it felt to me like a lot of the things he was being criticized for were for positions he took in past sessions. You know, uh, I think you guys mentioned the Mother's Day massacre in here. Um, and obviously this session, he got a lot of people's attention for kind of being brought into the leadership and I guess uh, behaving in a little bit less of a combative manner. Um, I'm curious, you know, why is that a bad thing? Why is that something he should be criticized for if 
if that's kind of, you know, you, you rewarded Dennis Bonin for being one of the best. If he's working closely with Dennis Bonin, wouldn't that mean he's doing a good job too? I think that there was some suspicion uh, by his colleagues that the change of heart was not inspired by his sincere positions on policy, but by the fact that he got a scare in the last election. Um, and uh, um, it was hard, I think, for us to make uh, sense of some of the um, things that he did this session, including things that he was lauded by other people for. Um, he was lauded for killing the really toxic abortion bill that showed up in his committee, but he also gave it a hearing. And it was also similar to policy that he had supported in the past. Um, um, it, I think it was also the feeling of some of his colleagues and the people who worked with him that he was less than fully honest and forthright um, with them this session. Do you think that Texas Monthly's politics are on display at all with this particular list? I mean, it seems to me like, you know, everybody who's on the best list is either a Democrat or somebody who plays really nicely with Democrats whereas the people on the worst list are either generally like Republicans or Democrats who didn't do enough to defend their party's interests? Well, I, I would say uh, I don't think that's that's always true of the Democrats. I, I don't think a lot of the criminal justice stuff that, say, Senator Whitmire was stalling um, was stuff that was supported by a lot of Republicans. Um, and I would also say that it, I, I don't think that it's inherently a, a left-wing or um, a partisan thing to think that um, uh, working across party lines in the legislature to win good policy is uh, is a, a good thing. I think that's something to laud. Um, uh, Tom Oliverson, for example, is a pretty conservative uh, House Republican who um, won a lot of good uh, health care policy this session by working with others. Any others? You guys? I've got one more, but... Yep. All right, I'll hit it. Um, so we talked about this a little bit in the lead-up to this, but some of this felt more personal to me in years past, like suggesting Tom Craddock should be playing golf or hanging out with his grandkids. Like if somebody said that to a woman, I feel like that would be like the grandkids part. That would be like super offensive. Or the Jeff Leach looked like a megachurch minister or the Betancourt looked like a bowling ball. You know, again, like descriptors that if they'd been turned around and used on a woman would probably have been, you know. Was this, this? I don't remember that from years past. So is it just like a slightly snarkier tone? Are you guys getting a little edgier? Or should we expect to see more of that from the best and worst list. So, yeah, so I, I think, you know, I can only defend what I wrote, and I can't necessarily say what I wrote. But um, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, You'll all have to just surmise, right? You no, know, hey, one thing I think, um, uh, if you go back to the um, you know, Paul Burke's best and worst list, some of that stuff was astonishingly tough. tough. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, like stuff that's meaner than anything I've ever written, <laughs> um, calling people thick and... Uh, um, useless and um, using a lot of highly personal language. Um, I think, uh, um, yeah, I, 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 think, um, I, I think we tried to stay uh, respectful while also um, capturing some of that, uh, you know, traditional um, uh, colorful type language. Yeah. And as you look at this list, what's the, what do you think people should be most surprised about on this list? Like before it came out, what did you think people were going to, you were going to hear the most about or that people, what's the most surprising pick on this list in your mind? Uh, I, I think that's a good question. I, I think I have a hard time um, seeing what other people will find surprising. I have heard from people um, uh, who appreciated, I guess, the inclusion of people like Whitmire on the list who feel like he's been um, coasting for a long time on a much more positive public perception than is warranted. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I can't really say. Good. All right. Well, thank you so much, Chris. We were thrilled to have you here, uh, and we hope you'll come back in two years to do this all over again. So thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. 
All right. Uh, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TribCast sponsors, the Texas Farm Bureau. Big isn't bad and small isn't better. It takes farms of all sizes and the families behind them to make agriculture work. More at TexasFarmBureau.org. And the Texas Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute, whose vision is for Texas to be the national leader in treating people with mental health needs. Visit TexasStateOfMind.org for more. Julian, welcome to the TribCast. Thanks so much. And it's, welcome back to Austin, Texas. It's a pleasure to be here. I feel like I should have like some walk-up music. Like uh, you deserve walk-up Clash music. Or, you know, some Motley Crue or something. Uh, I know, totally. Some Rolling Stones action here. There, there you go. Uh, well, we are um, really thrilled. It's been a long time since we've done a deep dive on the border, and there's been a lot of action to discuss. So I, I want to start by talking about tariffs. I want to start talking about what Trump had proposed and then what sort of Mexico agreed to do to avoid it. I know you've been writing a lot about this. So uh, I guess the, the black and white policy is that the president threatened to impose uh, tariffs on all me- Mexican imports, uh, starting at 5%, going all the way to 25% through October if Mexico, quote-unquote, didn't do enough to stop the flow largely of Central Americans traveling through that country to come to the United States. Uh, he backed off that threat, and I think he got a lot of heat from a lot of Republicans that have uh, been reluctant otherwise to speak out against the president and some of his proposals. Mainly, you know, our, our uh, U.S. Senators, uh, Ted Cruz and John Cornyn, actually piped up a lot, uh, as did a lot of House members. The Democrats were obviously, you know, not on board with this from the get-go. But uh, I, just to put in perspective, the, the, the reason that this was so controversial is that, you know, we've had this trade war with China already, and that's been going on. But uh, Texas-Mexico, or U.S.-Mexico trade is, is inherently different in the fact that Certain, there's so many imports that once they're completed in Mexico and imported to the United States, there is about 40% of those, um, of the parts for a lot of these imports that are actually made here. So a car will go back and forth on the assembly line six or seven times. So you're not only, you know, hurting Mexico, but you're also hurting American workers, which I think is, is the point that was trying to be made. And, you know, a lot of people were saying, well, this is going to affect the border states the most, which is true. You know, we have the logistics and the warehousing and everything like that on the border. Um, but, you know, you have assembly lines in in Michigan, you know, auto plants, you know, right. everywhere. So this is going to be just a nationwide thing. And just to put it in perspective, through April, two-way trade between the U.S. and Mexico has exceeded uh, $200 billion. That's billion with a B. Right. You know, so we're averaging about $50 billion a month. Uh, the Laredo port is the now the busiest uh, port, you know, whether it's a seaport or inland port. They jump Los Angeles. Lo- Los Angeles lost favor largely because of the trade war with China. So Laredo is just, you know, living high on the hog out there because this keeps coming back and forth. Wow. So uh, what the Mexican government agreed to do was it agreed to send about 6,000 of its National Guard troops to its southern border. Um, Guad- so its southern border is, help me with geography, Guatemala? Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. so, um, so the Suchiate River, um, and uh, if you guys uh, remember this project that, you know, we did in 2016, where, you know, with Jay Root, Alexa, Ura, and I went actually down there, and Martin, uh, our, our photojournalist at the time, um, I mean, it's, it's just wide open. I mean, the, these people, there's a legal crossing, and p- even people with legal permission to cross will take these rafts back and Float forth. right over. Right. Yeah. So um, photographs uh, as recently as, um, you know, yesterday and, and this morning have shown, you know, National Guard troops there, so the tra- that traffic has slowed. Um, they also agreed to expand the program called uh, Remain in Mexico. It's officially called the Migrant uh, Migration uh, Protection Protocols, which uh, pretty much mandates that if you're a central asylum, mainly central asylum um, Central American asylum seekers, now it's expanded to Cubans, and there's a lot more Africans that are coming also. Yeah, I saw some stories about that this right. week. So, um, you know, you can go to the United States. You have to wait in Mexico before your number is called. Sometimes it's months before you can actually make your asylum claim, and then you're sent back to Mexico waiting for your court hearing. And this started in San Isidro in California. 
um, in late December. It was expanded to the El Paso Juarez area in March. And now they're getting, I mean, there are thousands of people waiting there. So you combine this with, with the fact that Juarez is getting dangerous again. We're seeing, we're seeing murder rates um, that are rivaling, you know, what, what people call the war from 2008 to 2011. folks are just blocked up in there? Uh, well, I mean, the, the violence is, is, it's a cartel war is what it is. It's, it, you know, it's resurfacing. There's a lot of theories about why it's happening. But just for example, day before yesterday, the, the, there were 10 murders in Juarez, you know, just in one day. So we're averaging between four and five a day. So the Central American folks, they're, uh, they say they're at risk, and they are at risk. The shelter directors say, you know, we don't know what to do. It's very guarded. It's very tense. And you also have a lot of Mexican folks that, you know, are, are starting to say, hey, look, man, you know, our government needs to take care of us. Yeah, we don't want – it's the same issue on the U.S. side of exactly, the Exactly, right. I mean, you know, they're going to take – you know, the, what if we give them visas to work in Mexico, then they're going to take jobs. I mean, all this sounds very familiar, right? Right. So, so I mean, I, you know, if you're on the U.S. side of the border, there are people arguing, like, this is working. You know, there was a story this week that family unit members detained at the border dropped 13% right. since the beginning of this month. So can Trump claim, like, victory? This is working. We got Mexico to step up to the plate? Not yet, because summer is um, when you typically see a, a downturn because it's, it's so too hot. hot. Right. So um, the Washington Post had a great article yesterday morning on the, si- the same time frame that decided these, this 13% dip in apprehensions from the beginning of June to yesterday. The same time frame... Um, last year, the year prior was about 18%. Wow, so, even further. Just, right. So, and that, it's I mean, the most dangerous that, time to try I, I need to, to check that. That, that, could be, that mm-hmm. could be all of June. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's hot. You know, it's hot in you know, it, it, the, the Juarez, the Chihuahuan Desert. It's hot when you're going through Rio Grande Valley and Tamaulipas and Coahuila. But what we're also seeing is that uh, certain sectors, mainly Del Rio and the Big Bend sector, they're seeing a surge. Not, they're not seeing the numbers, but they're seeing the percentage increase. And these are small outposts that aren't equipped to handle this. So the Rio Grande Valley has always been used to getting, the, you know, these large surplus of people. And then El Paso just, you know, sort of blew up within the last year. And so now, you know, if you, if you put more enforcement here, you put more enforcement here, you're going to squeeze it toward the middle. And Texas, you know, is going to remain ground zero for all this, you know, illegal migration. Um, talk for a couple of minutes about, I mean, I saw another story this week about the what you just mentioned, the increase in the number of African migrants mm-hmm. who are coming in at ports of entry in right. Texas. What's happening there? Why are we seeing those numbers growing? I think it's a combination of folks. You know, I spoke with some... Um, some folks from the Congo, a family from the Congo, in a shelter in Juarez just a few weeks back. And they say, you know, the civil war, you know, just messed everything up and, you know, poverty and violence and strife and, you know, the lack of security. But, you know, I think the word is, is getting out the way the word always, you know, gets out. With the, you know, the smugglers aren't, aren't stupid people. They're very smart. So the same way they're telling Central Americans, hey, you got to go now because Trump is going to do A, B, C, one, two, three. You got to go now before, the, you know, he completely shuts down the border. Um, I think the word is getting out to other countries that also want to. I mean, you're seeing you're seeing folks, a lot of folks from uh, Nicaragua. I talked to a Russian family in at a shelter in Juarez that was waiting to claim asylum, and, and the poor guy, you know, he knew one word in Spanish. It was mañana because every day he went to God, see if his number was in a call. They just said mañana, Mar- mañana. Tomorrow. So it's just, uh, I mean, this is. It's not new that they get what they call OTMs other than Mexicans. That's an official term. I'm not trying to be mean about it. But um, the OTM definition is now expanded to include people from, from the Congo, from Uganda, I mean, from everywhere. I mean, the New York Times had this huge story this week about the, the four-month-old baby, like the youngest baby in the family separation crisis right. or the non- youngest baby they know of in the family separation right. crisis. And I read that story, like, expecting that child to be a Central American child, and the, child, the family's Romanian. Right. <laughs> they yeah. just came in through, you know, the southern border. Sure. So clearly it's not just, like, in Africa, I right. mean, this is getting out as a way to get in the country, sure. basically. And, and what a lot of a lot of uh, the president's critics were saying is that Mexico was already doing a lot of this enforcement. And the, the Tribune went down to Piedras Negras a few months ago, where there was one of the smaller caravans that came up, and the Mexican government actually uh, held them at a, at a former warehouse there. 
um, Piedras Negras is the border city across from Eagle Pass, Texas, and they did not let them cross, and the Central Americans were really upset. They were saying, you know, the Mexican president is doing Trump's bidding for him. So this, this phenomenon of the Mexican government doing more to stop people, that's been going on for, for a while now, um, even before this tariff threat, but it's just, you know, now it's like, it's the same thing but on steroids because it's really, really happening. And the latest thing that we're seeing is the president, day before yesterday, tweeted out that he's going to start his mass deportation. Um, and that's not just going to be a border problem. I mean, you know, folks in the construction industry, I'm, I'm pointing this way because we see cranes everywhere in, you know, major cities in Texas. So you're going to have, you know, a lot of folks that um, in the workforce are going to be worried about it. You're going to have a lot of kids that are going to be afraid to go to school, not maybe because they're out of status, but they're going to be worried about whether they're going to come home and their parents are going to be gone. This is pretty much, I think, the fear um, that's sort of going to permeate through, you know, through mixed status families is going to be similar to what we saw right after the inauguration in 2017. All right. Well, thank you, Julian. This is really uh, helpful and illuminating in current status. Um, Abbott, uh, Sunday was the deadline for Abbott to veto any legislation or to line item veto the budget. Matthew, there were a few surprises in there, starting with the fact that he didn't even touch the budget, which, you know, normally we're expecting to see like a gazillion line item vetoes in there. Uh, but there were also several bills that he did veto for a variety of reasons. Uh, talk to us about the sort of most interesting um, bills you saw or the lack of his, you know, um, attention to line item vetoes in the budget. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like I think you correctly pointed out, maybe the most surprising thing was that he just signed the budget in its complete form. Yeah, form. that like never happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and that, I think that maybe says something a little bit about the, um, you know, I think it was maybe a Dallas Morning News headline that said, you know, the end of the kumbaya session ends with, you know, Kumbaya. Kumbaya, right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there were some vetoes that came that surprised people or surprised me at least. Um, you know, the chief among them being the uh, car seat bill. This was a bill that would make it a crime for um, not putting your child under two with a few exceptions, depending on the size of the child, in a rear-facing car seat. Um, you know, experts are pretty unanimous that that's the safest way to put your kid in the car and most car seat manufacturers basically those are the rules that's right, right. Yeah. that's right and basically uh abbott um vetoed it um saying two things one that you know we uh you have to kind of allow parents to know what's best for their children or do what they think is best for their children and the other one saying that this was kind of a um, criminalizing something that shouldn't be criminalized. And, you know, that's a, a big complaint about a lot of kind of laws, especially around parenting, where, you know, maybe the best solution isn't giving someone a ticket that might get them in trouble or might get them in jail if they can't pay the ticket and things like that. But instead, um, you know, do accomplish this goal through education in some sort of way. Um, you know, the, the, the other side of that argument, the argument that were, uh, was being pushed by supporters of this bill, it was, it was broadly supported in the legislature, was basically that if you make something illegal, that kind of clicks in people's heads and makes them more likely to do it. And you, you go back to the car seat laws, uh, or sorry, the seatbelt laws. Um, you know, the one way that they really kind of got people to start wearing their seatbelts was by saying you get a ticket if you don't. And so it, it was a complicated issue. Um, and that's kind of what you saw, I think, in a lot of the bills Abbott vetoed, where the idea was popular, but Abbott didn't necessarily agree with how they went the about doing it. Yeah. yeah. What yeah. would the penalty have been for that? I mean, was like it, just it, like, a, like a, a traffic ticket. It was like a rising level of fines. It was the first time would be a warning, and the second was like a two hundred and fifty dollar fine or something yeah. like that. Yeah. There was another bill, um, a, a cyberbullying bill um, that was 
kind of sparked an interesting discussion in this as well, um, where basically repeated harassment on social media, um, not even necessarily directed at, you know, it, uh, it's, it's not just like, um, you know, sending someone messages saying, you know, whatever in a harassing manner, but could just be not directed at anyone, but kind of have the effect of harassing an individual person. Uh, that was vetoed um, basically because Abbott kind of p pointed out that, you know, this could in some ways possibly criminalize like criticizing elected officials on social media. You know, I, I'm sure Abbott and pretty much any other statewide elected official um, pretty used to it, yeah. is pretty used to being told, you know, things about themselves on, on Twitter and, and that's not necessarily a crime. And, and you could argue it's a violation of the first amendment. Um, again, he kind of, he, he, he pointed out that he supports the idea of fighting cyberbullying, um, but didn't think that this was the right way of going about it. And we know that one way he himself has gone about it is blocking some of his critics on both his official and personal Twitter accounts. That's just based on public records requests. Hmm. A lot easier than, uh, probably a lot easier than making it public policy, <laughs> but yeah. When was, when was the last session that they, they passed the budget or did he, the uh, governor sign the budget without doing any line item vetoes? That's an that? excellent Ross Ramsey question. It's definitely the first time that he has done sure. that. I'm not sure going back beyond that. Um, but you know, I mean, that's one of the most powerful things a governor can do. Right. And so the fact that he didn't do it at all was, was fascinating. Anything else on the list? Emma, anything uh, stick out to you? Well, sometimes with vetoes, the question is, uh, was the problem the content of the bill or the author of the bill? And certainly among Senate Democrats, there's been some speculation that they've seen some, you know, broadly popular, sometimes local bills, a lot of bills relating to the state's uh, beleaguered adult guardianship program vetoed. And some of them have speculated openly that that's because they refused to confirm Abbott's nominee for Secretary of State. That's David Whitley, of course. Right. Good deal. Okay, well, that's all the time we have this week. Uh, thanks to the Texas Children's Hospital, the American Heart Association, the Texas Farm Bureau, and the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute, our sponsors this week. An extra special thanks, as always, to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Matthew, Emma, Julian, Chris, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. <laughs>